This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 9. Christ's demands on the world are not small. He's not asking people to be better. He's not asking people to try harder. He's not even asking people to be nice. Jesus is asking people to follow him and be transformed in heart and mind. That's the theme of today's message, Jesus' power to transform. And that should give us all hope. Because in this portion of Matthew's account, Jesus transforms the life of the worst in society and makes them his true disciples. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. We're following this Gospel verse by verse, so that's the next scene in our sequence here. And the Word of God says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worst terror results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and uh, wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved." So church, here is Jesus Christ's power to transform very clearly told to us here by Matthew. And the best way to understand this is to divide it again in its natural divisions here. And when we do this, a very clear outline emerges. And what we have here is Jesus issues an offer and an order. So let's look at the offer to the sinner in verse 9. The offer to the sinner. The other Gospels, the other synoptic Gospels, record the same scene. Matthew does it in Matthew 2, uh, rather Mark, in Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. And Luke does it in Luke 5, verses 27 through 39. Between the second and third group of three miracles, which we're calling a triad of miracles of chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records three encounters between Jesus and specific groups of their society. And the first of those encounters highlights the call to the Gospel writer, which the author describes in third person, even though this is an autobiographical account here. And he takes only one verse to describe his conversion, the transformation, his encounter with Jesus Christ, which is remarkable here, the transformation of this man in an instant. Now, the mention of his text collecting booth is interesting here. It indicates that Matthew owned an established practice, contrary to many of his contemporaries at the time who were itinerant text collectors. 
In other words, he enjoyed financial stability. But his immediate reaction upon hearing the voice of Christ is again remarkable. Because you remember the previous scene when the paralytic got up when Jesus called him. We have the same thing here. Matthew got up and immediately his upward and forward movement demonstrates the heart transformation that this man experienced when he heard the voice of Christ. Now Luke informs us that Matthew left everything behind. That's in Luke 5 verse 28. The former tax collector here, he had a lot to lose. Once he quit his job, there was no turning back because there were many people who coveted the lucrative business of tax collecting on behalf of Rome. Now, because of this, Matthew was the most hated man, one of the most hated men in Capernaum. He was politically despised. He was religiously defiled and socially detestable. And yet he is a perfect illustration of Jesus' power to transform people. So let's make three observations here based on the life of Matthew. The first item to notice here in his autobiographical account of his conversion here in verse 9, Jesus called the politically despised. Again, the Jews considered Matthew a traitor along with every other tax collector. The reason for that is because his profession allowed him to extort money from his fellow countrymen on behalf of the occupying force. We understand from the context here that God already convicted him of his spiritual bankruptcy. You see, he was rich from an earthly perspective, but spiritually he was poor. He was bankrupt, and he recognized that fact by responding to the call. He may have lost his fortune, and that's what we need to understand and observe here. He may have lost his fortune, but he gained an inheritance. He gained life, and along with every born-again believer in Christ, he became truly rich. How do we know that, church? Because the Bible tells us in Matthew 5, verse 3, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see? Matthew lost his tax collecting business. He lost his money, but he became a subject of the kingdom of heaven. He, at that moment, received the greatest gift there is. That's why he identifies himself by his name, the gift of Yahweh. Salvation is a gift from God. Now, we don't have modern equivalents to first century tax collectors. Perhaps corrupt politicians provide a better example, or people who don't share our Christian beliefs who are in public office. But most importantly, the best thing we do is to pray for these people, because according to the scene that we are just reading about, Jesus transforms people. He calls the politically despised, and the Bible demonstrates that very clearly. He turns the politically despised into productive disciples. But I want you to know that Jesus not only calls the politically despised, according to the example of Matthew here, Jesus calls the religiously defiled, according to the example of this man here. Like I said, Matthew was one of the most hated men in Capernaum. But worse than that, he was ceremonially unclean. The Jews considered him ceremonially unclean. Here's why. The land belonged to the Jewish people by divine promise. And in their mind, nothing could be more insulting and treacherous than paying taxes to occupying Gentiles. So for this reason, the Jews hated tax collectors. And for this reason, they did not allow Matthew or his tax collecting colleagues to go into the synagogues. He was banned from synagogues. And likewise, the Jews would alienate anyone who associated with publicans. Now, from Matthew's perspective, let's try to understand his heart. To the Romans, he was no more than a source of income who could be replaced at any moment. To the Jews, he was an unredeemable apostate. But in his heart, church, he longed to be forgiven. He longed to be accepted. 
He must have heard that Jesus forgives sins. And when he heard the voice of the Savior, we see here there is no thinking twice. He didn't think twice. He couldn't run fast enough to the saving arms of Christ. Why? Because he knew that Jesus forgave sins and he was a wretched sinner. He recognized that fact and he couldn't run fast enough to the arms of the Savior. No amount of money would keep him from divine forgiveness that his soul thirsted for so much. In church, we tend to place people of different religions in the category of defiled enemies. But that's a mistake. When we do that, we act like the Pharisees, who we remember had insufficient righteousness to make it to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says that very clear. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. So their righteousness was deficient to cause them to get into the kingdom of heaven. So we shouldn't follow that example because that's what they're saying. They're saying they are the religiously defiled. Those people are the religiously defiled. We are the pure. And when we do this, when we consider people from other religions, the religiously defiled rather than our mission field, we make the same mistake. We fail to realize that they need Christ as much as we did when we were outside of Christ. And as much as we do now, they long for divine forgiveness. The problem is they try to earn it by their own works. Every other religion other than biblical Christianity preaches that you need to do all of these things to earn favor with God, to earn your place into the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says nothing can be further from the truth. You need to just respond to the call of Christ by grace through faith and you will be transformed. God still calls people of cults and false religions into the purity of the gospel and he uses them for his glory. I know a few of them and maybe you know some of them too. But I want you to know, church, that every subject of the kingdom of heaven, every one of us was once religiously defiled. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And he tells the Colossians in Colossians 1, verse 21, You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And to the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, You turned to God from idols. To serve a living and true God. What he's telling that church is, you were all pagans, but now you are serving the true and living God. And he proves what he says by presenting him as a case in point. Listen to his testimony in Galatians 1 verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And he provides the great example of Jesus' power to transform a religiously defiled into a productive disciple. So Jesus calls the politically despised and the religiously defiled. And thirdly, I want you to know, Jesus calls the socially detestable. That's the life of Matthew. He could not testify in Jewish court because of his profession. They wouldn't allow him to do that. He couldn't attend social gatherings with the Jews. He couldn't conduct any business with his fellow countrymen because he was socially an outcast, detestable in the eyes of the people. The reputation of his profession eroded trust with people. And yet... As a redeemed sinner, he writes a biography of Jesus to the very people who would have struggled to believe a former tax collector. Have you considered that? He's writing to the Jews to let them know that Jesus is the King of Kings, that Jesus is the King of the Jews, and yet he is one that they would have considered religiously defiled, politically despised, and socially detestable. Now, his trade made him a social outcast, written off by everybody, but not by Jesus. 
not by the majestic Savior who loves him. He loved him so much, too much to leave him in a state of hopelessness, in a state of being overwhelmed by the guilt and the shame of his sin. And that's what Jesus does today with people. He loves us too much, church, to leave us in our state of hopelessness, in a state of guilt and shame because of our sin. Let me ask you a question. Who are the social outcasts of our generation? Don't answer that question out loud, but Consider, who are the social outcasts of our generation? Who are the people you would not trust? People you would consider unworthy of your friendship? That's who Matthew was to that society. And I want you to think that Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves those people. He is a friend of sinners. He came for them. Listen to his own words in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the mission of Christ. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And upon their repentance and response and faith, Jesus places the lost, but now found in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he does today. He specializes in the business of transforming people from the inside out. Now, perhaps our culture considers you a social outcast. A socially detestable and untrustworthy because of past sins? I want you to know, friend, that even if people marginalize you, the Savior calls you to follow Him. Not because you are better or worse than anybody, but exclusively because of His grace. And He says this in John 15, verses 13 through 14, Greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. And church, today He commands you to follow Him. Jesus offers sinners newness of life. He extends an opportunity to sinners to walk away from their sin and into forgiveness. Out of darkness is into the light to move from death to life, from guilt to freedom. And when you respond to Him, you will no longer be in Adam, but in Christ. You will pass from condemnation and receive coronation. Out of disobedience into discipleship, from wrath to worship, from blame to blessing, out of abandonment, into adoption, from foe to family, out of rejection, into redemption, no longer bound to Hades, but now bound to heaven, out of the mire of sin, into the miracle of salvation. That's what Jesus does. And when you come to Christ, you may lose a lot, my friend, from an earthly perspective. You will certainly lose your popularity. You may lose friends. You may even lose your job. In other parts of the world, you are at risk of losing your life when you come to Jesus Christ. But from a heavenly viewpoint, my friend, you become rich. Remember the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Subjects of the kingdom of heaven are blessed beyond our ability to understand, beyond our ability to comprehend, because we are in Christ. So that's the offer to the sinner. According to verse 9 here, the example of Matthew, Jesus offers newness of life to the sinner. He offers transformation of heart and he says, follow me. But I want you to see here, according to verses 10 through 17, the order to the self-righteous. And the author places Jesus and the disciples, including himself, in a house. And Luke reveals that this was a feast that took place at Matthew's house. Again, letting us know that Matthew was a man of great possession. He had money. He had financial stability in order to throw that party. And he invited his tax-collecting buddies to attend this feast here, to meet the Savior who showered him with grace, who transformed his life. Now, 
Although he doesn't disclose his intention here, the context makes it clear that what he wanted to do is introduce his former colleagues to Jesus Christ. And that is normally what people do when they find salvation in Jesus Christ. They want to invite friends over so that they can meet the Savior. That is a true, genuine conversion, friends. Matthew immediately, immediately became an evangelist and invited all his his friends to know the Savior. But not everyone was happy with the salvation of sinners. And that's the tragic portion of this seen here. Not everyone was happy with the salvation of sinners. The Pharisees resented Christ. They thought that the Messiah should hang out with them. They thought the Messiah should hang out with the religious elite. In their minds, they were the religious elite. They were undefiled in their minds because of their distance from the scum of society. I don't hang out with these people, but your teacher does. Notice the rejection of Christ here is very apparent here, and it'll become very much clear by chapter 10 that they have rejected Jesus Christ. And it starts right here when they say, He is your teacher. He's not my teacher. My teacher doesn't hang out with the scum of society. In fact, we are the teachers of this society. But your teacher, he hangs out with publicans, tax collectors, and prostitutes. He is a friend of sinners. So Jesus Christ gives them a twofold order. The first one is in verses 10 through 13. And then this is it, church. Learn the compassion of God. Very simple. That's how Christ responds to that criticism. Learn the compassion of God. Now, Matthew reports on a short dialogue between Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees. A simple analogy introduces his argument. Healthy people don't need a doctor. That's not hard to understand. Again, this is, there's no mystery here, no enigma. A very mundane, simple-to-understand analogy. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Now, Christ's critics couldn't agree more that the tax collectors and sinners were spiritually sick. They agreed with that. No problem there. The problem is they just refused to acknowledge that they too were unhealthy. Their self-righteousness blinded them to the fact that they were spiritually dead. And every person who is outside of Christ is now spiritually dead, according to Ephesians. And Matthew spots their lack of integrity. I hope you spotted that too. You might want to circle that verse. Instead of going to Christ, they went to the disciples. Classic move. Classic divisiveness. The desire to sow seeds of division. Don't go to the source. Spread lies around. Go to the other people. They go to the disciples. But I also want you to see the irony here. Jesus Christ is a great physician and he addresses them. He addresses the very people who think that they were the physicians. In other words, Jesus Christ says, well, you think you are the doctors of the society here? Let me tell you something you need to go and learn. By the way, that's a common expression in rabbinical teaching at the time. Go and learn. In other words, you know nothing. You need to learn. You are as unhealthy as these people. You are not the physicians of the society, spiritually speaking. You are as sick as they are, so you need to go and learn. And that simple command, church, would have insulted them greatly. Say, wait, what do you mean? Who are you to tell us to go and learn? We teach people. We go and teach. We don't go and learn. And Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. You go and learn because you are spiritually dead. You need to learn. You think you know God, but you don't. And that is an indictment on their self-righteousness. Specifically, Jesus instructed them to go and learn Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. This is what that verse says. This is God speaking. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So this is right from their Bible, the Pharisees' Bible, the Old Testament. Jesus says, you don't even know your own Bible. How can you claim to teach people since you need to learn? You don't know the nature of God. You don't know that God is a God of compassion. You think that God is a God of liturgy, a God of legalism. But you are wrong. You are hypocrites. Your righteousness is deficient. So you need to learn. And then 
Jesus Christ indicts their gross misapplication of the Bible and places them in the same category of the ancient apostates of Israel. They knew exactly what he was talking about, and they were furious because of that. They failed to realize that God does not care about outward expressions of religiosity if your heart is not in the right place. They failed to understand that God is not concerned about a facade. He wants to know what's in the heart. And this is a serious warning for us, church, those of us who are born-again believers today, because just like the Pharisees, we are uh, carnal people too. We fall into temptation from time to time, and we fall into the temptation to misunderstand the compassion of God, to misunderstand that God forgives, even though we may not want to forgive. God does forgive, and He demands forgiveness from us. And here's the warning for us, church. If we are not willing to admit we are as wretched, as sinful, as much in need of the great physician as the vilest pagan, God has no interest in our worship. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he explains the same principle in Matthew 5, verse 24, when he says, you need to go and reconcile before you offer me anything. Otherwise, I'm not interested in what you have to offer. You need to go and reconcile with your neighbor, with your brother or sister in Christ before you come and worship me. So that's nothing new. Jesus already talked about this, and now he's taking that into the realm of loving the sinner, the people who are outside of Christ. Furthermore, church, this passage here teaches us a very clear lesson. If we are not heartbroken for the lost, if we don't weep for them, if we don't pray for them and witness to unbelievers, our religion does not reflect the heart of Christ. Look at verse 13 again, if you need to be reminded of the mission of Christ, if you need to be reminded of the heart of Christ. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees should place themselves in the category of dirty, vile sinners. Same category as the tax collectors. Different sins, equally lost. Different sins, equally lost. So the second part of that is learn the celebration of grace. Learn the celebration of grace. Now, the third interaction of this scene here that Matthew gives us records a brief conversation between Jesus and the disciples of John the baptizer concerning a common spiritual discipline, fasting, which was associated with grief. Now, Luke and Mark add something very interesting to this scene here. That's in Luke 5, verse 33, and Mark 2, verse 18. They add that the Pharisees were part of the group. So if you're reading Matthew here, you think that only the disciples of John came to Jesus, but the other synoptic gospels tell us that the Pharisees were accompanying the disciples of John in that confrontation with Jesus Christ. And resentment may have motivated their accusatory tone. You can see this here, the accusatory tone motivated by their resentment. And this is the reason for their resentment. They fasted. Jesus feasted. You see, they fasted only ritualistically, we know that, because they're all hypocrites, according to Matthew 5, according to how Jesus calls them, and how Jesus points out in verse 13, the deficiency of their system, their pharisaical system. They fasted only ritualistically, and Jesus was feasting. (laughs) So they were furious. And he explains to them that the transformation of sinners, initiated and illustrated by the presence of the bridegroom, calls for a celebration, not mourning. You see, fasting is always related to grief and mourning. And Jesus says, there's no reason to mourn. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. Messiah is here. I inaugurated the messianic age. I came to call sinners. There's reason to celebrate, not to be upset, not to be furious because Jesus Christ eats with sinners. Now, here's what the wedding analogy means. According to Isaiah 54 verse 5, God identifies himself as the husband 
of the nation Israel. He says this, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of the earth. And as the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus the bridegroom, came to purchase the bride with his own blood. And that's why he's using the illustration of a Jewish wedding here. And between his ascension and return, his followers can fast to express hunger and thirst for righteousness, according to Matthew 5, verse 6, and the desire to be with him. But in illustration format, Jesus tells them about the new covenant. And the new covenant demands the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, who has finally arrived to fulfill his mission to go to the cross on behalf of undeserving sinners, the very people whom he was befriending. And John's disciples and the Pharisees struggled to understand this because of their hard heart and because they needed a renewing of their minds. They needed a new heart, which only the new birth can accomplish. They needed to be transformed just like Matthew, who was a tax collector and became a disciple of Christ. They needed to become disciples of Christ. If they loved the Old Testament so much, they would have realized that the Old Testament is all about Christ. And therefore, the majestic Savior, Jesus Christ, invites them to adjust their thinking and to receive salvation. He calls them to salvation just like he called Matthew, only in a different way, by using illustrations here to indicate to them that their understanding needed to be renewed. Likewise, church, people will reject Christ today unless God adjusts their thinking. But those of us who have been transformed, those of us who have had our hearts and minds transformed by the gospel, we have a, the unspeakable joy of celebrating grace. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate this than call our friends to our house for a feast and say, Jesus Christ is here to transform you. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.